Thank you for listening to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care Podcast. The iCritical Care Podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. Your host is the Society's Associate Editor for Podcasts, Dr. Richard Savell. Dr. Savell is the Associate Director of the Surgical Intensive Care Unit at Maimonides Medical Center in Brooklyn, New York. He also is an Assistant Professor of Medicine at the Mount Sinai School of Medicine. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care Podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email info at sccm.org. Hello and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care Podcast for Thursday, September 15th, 2005. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Savell. In today's podcast, we will be speaking with SCCM member Barbara McLean, CCRN FCCM, a nurse intensivist from Atlanta, Georgia. Ms. McLean volunteered her skills in the Houston Astrodome and Georgia Brown Center in the wake of Hurricane Katrina and has agreed to share her stories with us from that experience. Uh, welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast for September 15th, 2005. We are now having our second interview, and we will be speaking with Barbara McLean, MNCCRNCCNSNPFCCM, nurse intensivist, Atlanta Medical Center, Atlanta, Georgia, USA. And she's going to share her experience with her recent volunteering in the Houston Astrodome and the Georgia Brown Center in the wake of Hurricane Katrina. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. Well, thank you, Rich. Um, I'd like to start out by asking if you could tell us a little bit about where you were and how long you spent at each location. Well, um, just to give you just a little bit of background, um, after the f- the levees broke, I was on the phone immediately with the Society of Critical Care Medicine and the American Association of Critical Care Nurses trying to uh, volunteer. And at that point, there was not much organization or knowledge of what was going to be needed. That, that actually evolved over the next 24 to 36 hours. And um, at that time, uh, Society of Critical Care Medicine, as you may know, manifested a huge volunteer response effort, but the requirement was uh, that any individual who was participating would have to have a two-week commitment, which I just am not able to do because of my my personal commitments and because I do educational programs around the country and had a number of uh, programs that I would not have been able to to reschedule. Right. I uh, communicated with some of my critical care colleagues particularly through this society in Houston, and they shared with me that UT, uh, Baylor, Methodist Hospital, and Herman Hospital had put together an initiative for management of all people that could be brought to Houston and that they had set up all these sites. And there were basically four sites, which most people don't know. Um, they, uh, there's three within the Astrodome complex, and the Astrodome complex was the Reliance Center, the Astrodome, and the Astro Arena. And um, the Georgia Brown Convention Center was a separate organization, um, and that's about 
five miles, I guess. I, in Houston, it's hard to know what your distances are because it's such a vast city, but it's about five miles away. Mm-hmm. Um, when I uh, spoke with my colleagues there who said that if I wanted to come, I could just come ahead, they'd get it all squared away, and just to bring all my credentials and license, I basically got on the plane the, the, uh, 12 hours later. So I was there really by day three after the flood and initially went to the Georgia Brown, uh, con- the Georgia Brown uh, conve- Convention Center. And in the Georgia Brown Center, uh, this was really more of a well-patient clinic at that time. Now, things changed very dramatically even in the short time that I was there. And in the two weeks since those clinics have been open, things have changed profoundly. Mm-hmm. But um, first I went to the Georgia Brown Conference Center, and I was there uh, for about seven hours the first day, and then I spent uh, about seven hours there yesterday. So I've been there twice. I've been to Houston twice. From the Georgia Brown Center, I then went to the the Reliance Center, which was the registration place for anybody who wanted to be in the Astrodome. But uh, from Reliance Center, I went to the Astrodome, which was uh, also operating a fairly well-patient clinic, really just a first aid station. And the physician in charge there said, you're a critical care nurse practitioner, you need to go to the arena. And actually, that's where I spent the majority of my time, was in the Astro Arena. Uh, The Astro Arena was actually a field hospital. And um, we had... I'd say probably 15 stations. Uh, The uh, registration station, which actually registered everybody into a network database, and there they received a medical record and a chart, and then they came to triage if necessary, and from triage, uh, and again, things changed very dramatically over the time. Uh, In triage, you you would get evaluated, assessed, evaluated, diagnosed, and uh, prescriptions or movement to another area if necessary. And those other areas included dental, uh, dental processes, op- ophthalmology, OBGYN, internal medicine, pediatrics, uh, women's health, x-ray, lab, uh, big internal med with curtained rooms, pharmacy, inoculation center, quarantine, family quarantine, among other areas. Those were the areas that I was mostly involved with, so those are the ones that I can say right off hand. And the, and the physical plant of where you were uh, initially, this was not a medical facility prior to the crisis? Oh, neither one, no. The Georgia Brown uh, Center is, is like a huge gymnasium, mm-hmm. Um, and it has lots of seats and a gym floor and then an ancillary room that's probably used for an exhibit hall. I mean, you know, I'm not from Houston, and I didn't really ask what it was used for, but a huge room that appeared to me to be an exhibit hall. Um, and I assume that they have games there and probably high school games and anything that requires any kind of exhibition that, that didn't need something bigger. I was wondering if you could share with us some specific clinical experiences that you had during your time volunteering there as a critical care practitioner. Um, well, you know, I had a lot of different experiences, and I, I would think that what most of 
the listeners are going to be interested in is the the more medical experiences that I had and but it was uh, I think really important for me to say to you and for everyone to hear that this single most important issue in disaster management from my point of view would be extreme profound fluidity because I'm a nurse practitioner um, there were times when we just didn't have enough uh, physicians and I would be acting as a nurse practitioner and di- evaluating, diagnosing, writing scripts, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, every criteria is sort of waived. You've been registered, you've shown your certification, and you write at the top of your script, Hurricane Katrina Relief. So you don't have to necessarily have a DEA number in that state in order to write prescriptions because it's disaster management. But in the face of an hour and a half to two hours, I would be nurse practitioner, nurse, housekeeper, social worker, chaplain, psychiatrist, babysitter, transporter, housekeeper, back to nurse practitioner in in an hour and a half. And I think the single most important issue was really to be able to be fluid. So many of my experiences there and some of the most meaningful ones were not necessarily medical. But uh, to talk a little bit about the medical experience on the first day when I got there, I I had been at the Georgia Brown Center for about six or seven hours uh, and then went over uh, registered in Reliance and was then assigned to the arena because of my critical care and emergency experience. That was where they felt that I would best be uh, utilized because that the arena was what was housing individuals, both um, the elderly and many of the young, but people that there was uh, belief that these were going, these individuals were going to need medical assistance. So it, it was sort of a separate area that had a very large amount of individuals. Now, in the space of what I what I understand, in the space of about five hours, they organized this very functional field hospital. And when I got there, I immediately went to work as a nurse practitioner and um, was there for the next 11 hours or so, 10 or 11 hours until the next morning. And um, saw a lot of folks that had just basically minor ailments, colds, lots and lots and lots of, of obviously of GI distress and diarrhea, and um, lots of folks that were just um, had left their homes without their medication or left where they were living without medication and basically who needed prescription refills. Because as we all know and in my personal uh, clinical experience, uh, working very frequently with individuals from a culture of poverty, um, many of the people that I worked with didn't know what medications that they were on. They they knew it was a water pill. They know they took something for sugar, but they didn't they didn't inject it. It was a pill, and it was for sugar or a pill for their high blood pressure, but didn't know what it was. Didn't know what the dosing was. Didn't know the name of the drug, and that was a very unique challenge. And those of us who work in um, communities and in systems that provide access to care for all people regardless of ability to pay and who often work with the culture of poverty know that a lot of times it's very difficult to sort of maintain um, a health agreement between the provider and the patient because 
um, their lives sometimes are very variable. They don't always have a place to live. They don't always have an address. They're not always able to get their medication. So we were doing actually a lot of acute care and then a lot of primary care. And there was a lot of primary care being done. And one of the probably, um, I had really three remarkable patients on that first day. Um, One was a uh, 79-year-old woman who had a 55-year-old son who was schizophrenic. And she brought, and he lived with her. She also had a 58-year-old son who was severely mentally retarded. Um, And they had gotten in touch with her granddaughter and grandson who lived, or granddaughter, I guess, in law and grandson who lived in Beaumont, Texas. And the granddaughter and grandson had come to Houston to get them, but she wanted her son to get his medications for his schizophrenia prior to leaving Houston because she had no idea what was going to happen after that. So she brings her son to us, and they come together into triage, and uh, you know, that's way beyond anything I know anything about or would ever feel comfortable managing. And so I basically referred him, triaged him over to the psychiatric service center where there were psychiatrists who could discuss uh, what kinds of medications he needed to be on. But she had very significant bilateral systemic edema, and it was about class three pitting edema and she had open venous ulcerations on both legs. Um, on questioning, she said, yeah, she thought she might have high blood, and she knew that she had high blood sugar, but she really hadn't been to a doctor for a really long time and wasn't taking any medications. And so on evaluation, her blood pressure was 180 over 110. Uh, she had a very loud uh, aortic stenotic murmur and uh, roused bilaterally about a third of the way up in the posterior fields. And I was very concerned about this woman. Uh, I probably would have preferred to admit her to the hospital for management, but she insisted that she was leaving. She needed to leave Houston. And I had a long discussion with her granddaughter-in-law that um, we actually found a a cardiologist to refer her to in Beaumont who was willing to see her. And if we people needed, I just want to ask you, so if people required uh, higher levels of care in the particular situation you were in, what kinds of things would happen? Did you see people that you felt needed to be moved out right away to actual uh, freestanding you know, hospitals, or, or, or can you tell us a little bit more about that? Oh, yeah, lots of patients, uh, lots of folks would just... It, on the first day in the triage center, in the first day in triage, we were evaluating, diagnosing, and treating. On the second day, we were purely triaging. That's all we did on the second day. But on the first day, we kind of ran that as an internal medicine clinic. Um, there was an area where you could go that had curtains where you could do EKG, et cetera, et cetera. But um, from triage, you would move patients wherever they needed to go, or you would send them straight away with EMS to a hospital. So you saw that happen frequently then? Fairly frequently. We didn't, you know, I, I was only in my area, so I can't tell you about any other area and what happened. I'm sure uh, as internal medicine kind of grew there and they had more and more physicians and um, providers come, NPs and PAs, I think that they were probably admitting a lot more folks. 
Um, initially, I, I would say on that first night, the abundance of patients were there for primary care, prescription refills, inoculation, and diarrhea, and temperature, you know, hypertension, I mean hyperthermia, and diarrhea and GI distress on that first night. Um, but as time went on, I think the level of acuity certainly progressed. And on the second day, I wasn't involved with that patient because they were, they were triaged over to internal medicine, a, a guy with very significant asthmatic, asthmatic disorder who then went into status asthmaticus and had a respiratory arrest. And there were a number, not, not a lot, but a couple of arrests that occurred during the period that I was there. That did not happen in the triage area. It happened in, in the internal medicine area. One of the other questions that we had for you were, if you could, it's sort of a two-part question, what were the conditions like at the Astrodome or where you were working, and what was your sense of the level of preparedness? Oh, well... Um, what I would tell you is that when I first got there, I felt like it was very uh, chaotic organization. It was organized, but it felt chaotic uh, when I very first got there. But within two hours, I think I had a whole new perspective of what had been done here. Every single patient was entered into a computer database. Every single prescription was entered into a computer database. So we were tracking who was there. We knew who was there, which I thought in and of itself was phenomenal and should be absolutely applauded. And the mayor of Houston and the, uh, the physician director of the whole UT system should be absolutely applauded because they got this together very fast and were very forward thinking uh, because no patient could be seen without having an official medical record, just like the ones we have in the hospital inside of a brown folder with all the colors on it, and they were all registered into a computer system, which I think was phenomenal in and of itself. We had um, CVS that supplied all these pharmacists and all the medications. We had a very significant operational pharmacy and a full laboratory set up. So uh, in looking at that, it was just a phenomenal organization that had come together very quickly. And each day, it got more and more and more fine-tuned. So I think the thing that felt chaotic to me was just that people weren't really sure who was doing what initially, but it became very clear once you were in an area for an hour, everyone knew who you were, they knew what your skills were, they knew who to bring to you, they knew what you were willing to do and what you could do. And I, I think by an hour together, we were op operating together in these areas like a very finely tuned team. And we had everything that we could possibly need. We had volunteers who went from area to area, and they came by about every hour and a half and said, what do you need? What needs to be restocked? Are there things you need that you don't have? Because we can get them. So uh, from that point of view, I felt like I had more access than I often do in my own institution. <laughs> I was really able to get anything that I needed or wanted, and, and there were always five to eight ambulances outside of the arena that could take patients right away to the hospital if necessary. We had, you know, we were doing, not in the triage area, but we were doing IV resuscitation and 
all sorts of, I mean, it was just a very well, highly functional field. So hospital. it sounds like you were very impressed with the rapidity with which this was put together and the level of sophistication in terms of supplies uh, that you were able to have access to. Absolutely. And, you know, I mean, I really, I, I saw a fair significance of acute patients. I mean, people with seizures who had had three and four seizures by the time they got into the triage center and the big trio, which you would probably suspect from, from this, this, um, this kind of group of individuals who might not have been at the highest economic level, was sort of the big trio was congestive failure, hypertension, and diabetes. Right. But the most important thing that, that you really learned in the triage center on those first days was the very first thing you said after I saw two patients, first thing I said was, how long, have, how long were you in the water? Because what you discovered was that everybody we were seeing then had been in the water, had been rescued from the water. And so there were people that had been in the water for seven days, people who had been in the water for six hours, two hours. The shortest time I had was two hours. The longest that I had was, um, by the end of that time, was like six, six days, I guess. Well, and you mentioned uh, two things that I wanted to follow up on. You said that some of your most profound experiences were, as you described, your, your non-clinical experiences, and I'm, I'm wondering if you might be able to share those with me and, and the other members of SCCM that really stuck in your mind as, as profound experiences from your time in here. Well, I, I, I guess I would say that as a, uh, as a nurse practitioner, it probably is part of my clinical experience, but it wasn't medical. It, it, it was... Um, just um, just the ability to sort of be with these people who had just been through the most tragic and destructive and I'm sure the most frightening circumstance to be, you know, 79 or 90 years old walking through water up to your breast not knowing if anyone was going to come for you and, and not knowing what was in the water and what might hit you or what, what you might step over. And one man who talked about how he was just swimming and holding on to his child uh, who was 12, and just after swimming for hours, really, the child just said, Daddy, I can't swim anymore, and he let go of his father's hand and drifted away and drowned. And, so you heard stories like this um, yes. directly from, and multiple stories, I assume. Yes. And you just, you cannot imagine the, the, two, the two sides of that whole story, which you really cannot experience from a television, which is just the, 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 the sadness of, the sadness and the horror of this experience for these individuals and their strength of spirit that kind of brought them through the whole experience and brought them now in, into Houston and people walking around with little tiny bags of whatever it was that they were able to keep and, you know, still being in their clothes after three days, even though they'd been given other clothes because that was the only thing they had left. And, you know, many people had their same clothes. And uh, some folks had them on their beds or underneath their cots. And, you know, when we transferred patients, like when this one man who had a asthmatic 
status asthmaticus respiratory arrest. My job was to go find where his bunk was and get all his things together for transport to the hospital because he had already lost so much. And he did actually have a CPAP machine, and, and, you know, it was all hoarded and covered under a blanket and all kind of stuffed inside bags. And, you know, obviously he had received things since he had been there, but most significant were these soaking wet sandy, dirty clothes that he had worn in the water that he had kept with him. And my job was to make sure that he didn't lose anything else, that all of that was all packaged up, and I put, I put everything that was wet in one box and said wet clothes and everything else in other boxes, put his name and his medical record number, and we wanted EMS to take him, but they couldn't. But, again, I have a lot of friends down there, and... My friend Delmar, who is a critical care nurse and a nurse practitioner student, also a member of SCCM and AACN, she knows everybody in Houston, and she got somebody to come and get it to make sure it was given to the nurses in the intensive care unit where the patient was so that when he woke up, he would have that little bit of nothing that he was able to save. And just the... the, the, the really most important part of being there was really just to be available to, to listen and to hold people's hands and just comfort them. And even, you know, I left for a few days and I went back yesterday. That was exactly what I did again yesterday, was most particularly trying to provide some type of support for people that were literally falling apart. I mean, they've been there now, you know, for over a week and a half. Many of them still have nowhere to go. They are very concerned about what's going to happen for the rest of their life, and it, 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 it's such a tenuous situation. And I think that, that that actually just being with people was really an incredible experience. And again, always... Uh, reaffirms my faith in the law of the human spirit and the ability to to be able to survive these horrible circumstances not only the flood but being in 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 louisiana and inside the dome and i had a lot of patients that came from louisiana in the dome there and the horrific experiences that they had and the fear of their fellow man in that situation well, it sounds like this was obviously a very profound experience for all of us, and hearing your experiences firsthand are, are truly remarkable. You're obviously very, very courageous. Uh, slightly off uh, that topic, uh, you, they showed on the news some issues of people who wished to volunteer and actually were in field hospitals, but they weren't able to get to where they needed to be. And I was wondering if you could share with us some of your experiences of perhaps the challenges and barriers to volunteering. It sounds like you were able to get where you were of great value fairly rapidly, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what that process was like. Well, anybody who knows me knows I'm pretty persistent. And um, I began, as I said, with SCCM and AACN, and then I was in direct communication with Fred Ognabeni, and Fred said, Barb, I really want, want you to volunteer, but you have to give a two-week commitment. And I knew I couldn't do that because I was running a mentorship program and I had people that had been planning for six months to come. And I just didn't feel that I could rearrange that. So my next step then was um, 
I, I amazingly had a, a lot of help from a lot of people. Um, we talked with uh, the Hillary Clinton's office. I called John Lewis's office. John Lewis is my representative, and of course Hillary Clinton is in New York. And I was actually uh, in Vermont at the time and was calling everybody in Vermont that I could that had any kind of pull to try to find out what to do. I called the U.S. Public Health. Uh, services. I called the Louisiana Public Health. I called the Louisiana Coast Guard. I called the National Red Cross, the Louisiana Red Cross, the Atlanta chapter of the Red Cross. Um, and now, why did you have to call so many different agencies? Nobody could. Nobody was able to tell me how I could volunteer. I spent I spent over twelve hours on the telephone. So people who weren't able to volunteer and people who weren't able to care for patients, and those were two different situations. It's mostly because there's such a profound barrier to finding out how you can volunteer. So somebody like yourself, well-connected with very with appropriate skills, wanting to volunteer, you were telling me you just listed five or six organizations, and, and what were the responses when you, when you contacted these places? Um, when I, I talked to the Louisiana Public Health Services, and they were very kind, and they... And, um, uh, they said, we're going to have someone call you back, and that never happened. Um, the Coast Guard never called me back. Um, the National Red Cross referred me to my local chapter. My local chapter did call me back three days after I had called them, and I'm sure that was just from their abundance of phone calls. What actually happened is that I, I really literally uh, did not sleep for calling all these different places. Some of them I called during the night, and then anybody that I didn't have a machine or that I didn't speak to someone, I called back the next day and literally logged that much time on the phone. And then I was coming home from Vermont, and on my flight home there was a field director for the Red Cross who I went over and I said, I, I want to tell you how much I appreciate the work that you're doing, and I want to tell you how frustrated I am. I can be, I can act as a physician, as in, because I'm a, a, a mid-level provider. So in disaster and in my own institution, I can diagnose and manage patients. Right, and obviously, right, right. I, anything that's uncomfortable for me, I'm going to refer to a physician. But I can go back and forth between a large variety of roles. So I have very good skills. I'm the chairperson for FCCS. I'm FDM trained. So it appears to me that I would be a very uh, I would be a benefit. An appropriate person, clearly yes. somebody very appropriate yes. that could be used rapidly and yes. in, in multiple flexible positions in yes. a very, very challenging situation. And this field director looked at me and he said, you know what, you're not going to go anywhere with the Red Cross because they're going to require a two-week commitment and you have to be trained first. He said, but if you know anybody in Houston, they need people there. And when he said that, I said, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm calling my friend. I called my friend. She called me back in 15 minutes. She said, I just got an email from UT. They'll take anyone who can prove that, that they're That they have appropriate credentials. That's correct. Right. And then I sent that out to all, uh, everybody's section that I had within SCCM, the nurse section and the PA section. Right. And I did notify the SCCM of that as well. Um, but... It, but it, the point it, that you're making is the process was time. not simple. The process was in no way no. straightforward. No. And yet, clearly, from what you described in the beginning of the interview, your services were clearly needed. Oh, absolutely. They, the, when I first got there, there were no teams that had been mobilized. Now, 
Um, and, and again, you know, having the, the, the benefit of seeing the initial time and then being gone for a week and then coming back. Right. Now all the clinics are, are closed or due to be closed by tomorrow, except for George Brown. Mm-hmm. And Georgia Brown now is being really run as a outpatient clinic, and it's being run by a team that the um, Surgeon General had requested from Mercy Scripps Hospital in California. And they have two teams. The first team is due to go home tomorrow, and the second team will come in. So which, which particular institution or organization ended up being the final one that sponsored you there, or was it really just... Nobody sponsored me. Nobody. I sponsored myself. You know what? I wanted to volunteer. I paid for myself to get there. I paid for my own hotel. No one sponsored me. But in terms of the organization that even helped to organize your volunteering efforts, it really sounds, unless I'm misunderstanding you, that even that was primarily on your own as well. Yes. Well, but 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 the the organization that did all of this is out of the UT healthcare system right. and the mayor of Houston. And I think that that's really critical to hear because the truth of the matter is these are people that need to be involved in our discussions about disaster management. You know, Houston is a huge medical environment. I mean, there's a huge amount of hospitals there, and they sent this email out to all of anybody who worked in the UT system, in the whole UT system. So I'm not from Houston, and I'm please forgive me, all Houstonians, because I'm not going to list everything, because I, I won't be able to. But if we're, t- we're talking about Baylor, we're talking about all the nursing schools under the UT system, any other medical school under the UT system, Herman, Methodist, MD Anderson, St. Luke's, a huge amount, and Ben Taub, a huge amount of hospitals and employees that all got this email that said, we need help. And if those individuals then sent those emails on to other people, and, you know, if you had ever worked there or if you had friends there and those people sent that on to you, that it was spread across the United States pretty quickly. But you had to have a connection in the UT system right. to have heard about it initially. Right. I mean, there was a nurse who drove all night from California and was working in a wide variety of areas, had already been there for you know, 40 hours when I got there. And the EMS system and the firemen and the police, when I got there, had already been there for 40 or 50 hours. This in terms UT, of needing relief, in terms of needing relief, they had been worked to the point of needing people to help relieve them. Absolutely. Right. And so when I got there, what the, the system was operating very well with very tired volunteers. And when you think about how whenever there's a disaster, the phones and the email and everything at Society of Critical Care Medicine is flooded. Every one of us has chosen to provide care to people in need, and we all want to help. But there, in the SCCM has done an incredible job of organizing us as volunteers and knowing knowing that they can call on us any time, but you, you have no pathway. Once that happens, you have all these people that are ready to, willing to go, and you have no pathway. And I, I think that the, there's, my, my purpose and my role here would never be to blame anyone, 
but to say that we have systems that were operational very quickly that needed lots and lots of help and relief. Right. And I think that was really evident when, when we got there. I, I will tell you that, that um, from the time that I got there uh, to that next morning, I didn't eat. I don't think I went to the bathroom. I, don't, I think I probably drank water, but I don't think I did anything else. And I think that was pretty much the way it was for everybody. People get into a disaster mode, and they're very committed to what they're doing. And there were so many people who needed physical help, who needed prescriptions, who needed inoculations, who needed a shoulder to cry on, who needed to borrow a cell phone to call their family in another state. There was so much that needed to be done. And th that very first set of volunteers... Bringing order to the chaos. Bringing order to the chaos. Absolutely. Right. But, but I don't want to characterize it. I don't want to characterize, from my point of view, the Astro Arena and the Astrodome and the Reliance Center is chaotic because I think it was controlled chaos. I think right. it's more bringing relief to other volunteers. Right. Uh, because I, I, I really thought that when you could step back from it, you really realized what a phenomenal task that was and how it got pulled off so incredibly quickly. Right. Are there things that could be done better? You bet. Did they get done better as time went on? Yes. As people became more experienced and they got to know each other and they worked with each other, it did get better. And there is something to be said for having an organized group who already know each other's strengths and weaknesses, because then you're not wasting your time on learning that. But I don't want to say that I felt like this, that this particular system was disorganized. Right. Do I think overall the response was disorganized? Incredibly so. Do I think that that resources were profoundly wasted absolutely yes if you think about the fact that this another phenomenal task of putting together a 250 bed field hospital st stacked with volunteers stacked with uh, therapeutic interventions and then not to see any patients uh, reprehensible as far as i'm concerned and that isn't from the part of the organizers that's from the overall direction of not putting not putting volunteers to the patients but wanting patients to come to the volunteers that's unacceptable in a crisis you have to go to where the patients are and if you're doing it with the government you have to go where the government tells you to go and that may not always be the right place because i can guarantee you in those first five days in houston we needed a lot of volunteers and i kept like emailing people saying you don't have to have a two-week commitment we need help down here please come well, Barbara, you've brought up some very, very important points, but from my standpoint as a member of SCCM, I'm very grateful for the time you've been able to spend with us today. We've been speaking with Barbara McLean, MN, CCRN, CCNS, NP, FCCM, a nurse intensivist at Atlanta Medical Center, Atlanta, Georgia, and I think we're going to try and wind things up at this point. What are some last uh, sort of thoughts that you'd like to share with the members of SCCM regarding your recent experience volunteering in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina? Well, I think the, the single, there's two really important uh, points that I want to bring up, and I, I think everybody in SCCM knows this, but I, I would be remiss in not reminding everyone that the kinds of patients that we saw um, in Houston and in Louisiana and in Mississippi 
many of these individuals are the patients that we see every day at places like Ben Taub and Charity and Grady Memorial Hospital in Atlanta and L.A. County, and that ever again this increases even more my resolve to make sure that no human being in the United States goes without health care access. I, I am so recommitted to that. I, I think I am anyway, and I encourage everyone to remember to, to take from this experience something that needs to be remembered and validated in our everyday practice, that, that everyone should have the ability to have health care access and that we need to have some type of a nationalized system that allows us to access people's health records in order to provide appropriate care or at least prescription records in order to provide appropriate care in these situations. And the other is just to uh, tell all my colleagues how proud I am to have been able to do this and how proud I was of how people responded and how wonderful the response was and just the strength of, of all of us together and that we really do have a lot of strength in order to provide better care and better access and to bring uh, a glimmer of hope to such a profound moment of suffering. It was really quite a gift. Well, uh, Barbara, I am incredibly grateful that you've been able to spend some time with us today. And uh, thank you so much for being part of the Critical Care Podcast. Thank you so much for all you've done. Thank you, Rich. This concludes our podcast for Thursday, September 15th, 2005. Look for future podcasts featuring a wide variety of information important to critical care practitioners, including interviews with authors and discussions with prominent members of the critical care community. Registration is open for SCCM's 35th Critical Care Congress. Please note the date and location change to January 7th through 11th, 2006 at the San Francisco Masconi West Convention Center. Learn innovative treatments in critical care, as well as fundamental business practices to improve your ICU environment, all developed by a multi-professional team of critical care experts. Register today by speaking with a SCCM customer service representative at 1-847-827-6888 or visit www.sccm.org. Don't miss out on this unsurpassed educational opportunity in beautiful San Francisco, California.